Well, good morning again. It's good to see you all. Thanks for gathering here this morning. Thank you for bringing the church into this space. And for those of you that are joining us online, thanks for bringing the church into your living room, around your dining room table. Uh, a special welcome uh, again as well to Crosspoint Jupiter. They joined us last week via uh, online and joining us again this week. Grateful to have you all. If you don't know, Crosspoint Jupiter is a church that uh, we get the privilege of partnering with to plant a church down in South Florida. And they're moving into a new facility uh, next week. And so kind of a little bit of an in-between time here. Now, I have the great joy and privilege of opening out God's word for us as we continue this series called Come and See. Um, It's this journey through the great book of John. And every week, regardless of the text, we do get this invitation to come and just to, to behold Jesus. Like, that's what I need. That's what you need all week long. It has been so tempting to behold other things. to to look at other things, to be tempted by other things. And there's this invitation, just come and to see and to experience Jesus and the grace that he has for us. And so this morning, we're going to finish out chapter 10. In some ways, it really is a continuation of last week as we looked at Jesus as the good shepherd. But there's also going to be some, some new details and things as Jesus begins to help us see who he is and what he's come to do. So I want to go ahead and read John chapter 10, verses 22 to 42. If you brought a Bible, please turn there to follow along. Or as always, you can go to cplife.church, and you'll see a card as you swipe over. The second card will say, Message Notes. And you can follow along that way as the text will be there as well as information. Things that are on the slides will be there as well. So this is God's word for us this morning. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 22. Then the festival of dedication took place in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus was walking around in the temple in Solomon's colonnade. And the Jews surrounded him and asked, How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Verse 25, I did tell you, and you don't believe, Jesus answered them. The works that I do in my Father's name, they testify about me. But you don't believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father Are one. Again, the Jews picked up rocks to stone him, and Jesus replied, I have shown you many good works from the Father, so for which of these works are you stoning me? We aren't stoning you for a good work, the Jews answered, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And Jesus answered them, Isn't it written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called those whom the word of God came to gods, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say you are blaspheming to the one the Father set apart and sent into the world because I said I am the Son of God? If I'm not doing my Father's works, well, don't believe me. But if I am doing them and you don't believe me, believe the works. This way you will know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Then they were trying again to seize him, but he eluded their grasp. So he departed again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing earlier, and he remained there. Many came to him and said, John never did a sign, but everything John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. 
There's a lot in this text in particular, as Jesus makes reference to, I said you are gods, and what is that? And we'll we'll get into that in a a few minutes, certainly. Um, But big picture, one of the things that will be helpful is just think about this theme of renewal, that we are people that are in need of renewal. We're in need of renewal like spiritually, emotionally, relationally, physically, like we, we feel that, all right? Like this week I had made an appointment, I went in to see a physical therapist, he's like, well, what brings you in? I'm like, well, my foot hurts, uh, my knees hurt, my shoulder hurts, all right? He's like, well, you're kind of a mess. You've been like stockpiling that list of things. I'm like, yeah, basically. And then I began to describe like, and my shoulder pain, it radiates to my chest. He's like, you sure you didn't have a heart attack? I'm like, oh gosh, I wasn't worried about that, right? So like all these, all these things um, that we just live in this broken world. And the reality is like, we are people that are in need of renewal. And what we are finding here in this text is that what is going on culturally is there's a celebration really of Renewal, And I'll unpack that more in a moment, but we need to keep that in mind. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to step into a celebration of renewal, of reconsecration, of dedication, as we hear early on in these these verses. And what he's going to say is, it's great that you're celebrating that. And I'm glad that you're celebrating that. But there is a bigger story. There's something greater and grander that you're invited into. And what he's trying to communicate to the people a couple thousand years ago He's inviting us to understand so that we as well might experience renewal. So this morning, we're going to look at that need for renewal that we have. And then Jesus gives us this wonderful glimpse, sort of this this picture, I would say, of renewal. And we're going to look more closely at, okay, if that's what we desire, and there's this picture, like how do we get it? Like what actually is the source of renewal? And so it starts out right away, this need we have for renewal. Like we feel this. I don't think you have to be a follower of of Christ to even just acknowledge there's pain, there's hurt, there's confusion, there's misunderstanding, there's loneliness, isolation, like all of those things. Like we long for renewal. Now, one of the things throughout the book of John that hopefully you're picking up on now, if you've been with us for any number of weeks, is that there are details that are given in the text and they are never by accident. They are highly intentional. And there can be things that we read that if we're not familiar with sort of just culturally what would have been going on, it would be easy to just sort of like blow right past that and be like, okay, kind of let me get to the parts that I really understand. But if we don't understand some of these feasts and festivals and things that are going on, we'll actually miss it. And so we've seen already through the book of John that Jesus is very intentional. Like when the Passover comes about and what they're celebrating there and how he connects his story to what's going on. We've looked at things like the, the Feast of Booths or the Festival of Booths or Tabernacles. And so you'll see some of that now. We're here at another place. And this is now a couple months later. It's the winter time. And so there's been some time that is transpired since the middle part of chapter 10 that we looked at and where we find ourselves now. And it tells us right away, it says the festival of dedication took place in Jerusalem and it was winter. And so you have all these people that have gathered. It's the winter months. And so they're in Solomon's colonnade, which would be protected a bit from the weather, a bit from the elements. And it's there that Jesus is teaching. And we need to understand for a moment what that actually was about. Like what were they celebrating? And so perhaps you're familiar with the festival of dedication, You may not be familiar with it in terms of that term or the Feast of Dedication, but you might know it as this. It's also referred to as Hanukkah, all right? So perhaps you have some familiarity. This is this particular celebration. And I told you it's a celebration, really, of renewal, specifically centered around the temple, that the temple of God was of utmost importance because the temple is where the presence of God was. It's where God and humanity meet. And so the ultimate renewal that you and I need is like we need to be enjoying the presence of God, to be walking with God, to be invited into his presence. 
And so for the Jewish people, the temple was of utmost, like it was paramount, it was everything. And so here's what this particular feast celebrates. This actually happened like after the conclusion of what we know as the Old Testament before the the time of Jesus. It was during the time period of like 175 B.C. to 164 B.C. There's different rulers that have come on the scene over time. And what you end up having here is this is after the Greeks, after Alexander the Great. There's these different particular factions. And if some of you are like, oh, I thought I was done with history, just pay attention for a moment. Like it is really helpful when we see what's going on hopefully some of the lights begin to go off like, oh, so this is what Jesus is trying to communicate. This is highly intentional. And so what you had, it was a celebration around the deliverance of God's people from a particular rule and reign of absolute terror. There was a ruler by the name of Antiochus IV Epiphanes, all right? There's some of the dates. This is where his period of rule. And up until this point, there had been Antiochus III and so on and so forth, Most of the approach of this particular empire, those that were ruling that particular part of the world, though they were of a Hellenistic or Greek mindset and they were trying to bring that sort of culture, most of the rulers up until this point would just say, hey, we're not going to rock the boat. If you've got your own thing, your own temple, your own worship, your own gods, cool, you do that. We just want peace sort of in the empire. But Antiochus IV Epiphanes would have none of it. Like he shows up on the scene. Here's This guy did not lack for self-esteem, all right? He had coins minted, all right, that looked like this, and on it that said, God manifests, and it was a picture of him, bearer of victory, all right? So you know you've got a little bit of a pride issue, a little bit of an ego when you're printing coins, minting coins that have your picture declaring to the world that you are God in the flesh. And this man who believed himself to be God in the flesh began to rule in such a way that brought absolute devastation to not only God's people, but specifically the temple. So he began to do and enact certain policies. So for one, he stopped the daily sacrifices in the temple. He would not allow for it to happen. The only sacrifices that he would allow is he would actually bring in, now picture this, into a culture that's kosher, he would bring in pigs, he'd bring in swine, and he'd have them sacrificed on the altar. I mean, this is an absolute abomination to God's people. He also ruled in a way that said, hey, little boys that are born, if they're part of the covenant, they're to be circumcised. He said, no circumcision is allowed. So bit by bit, he's trying to destroy and take away the identity of God's people. He would burn. He had copies of the scriptures burned. He wouldn't allow for that. He took a statue of Zeus and brought it not only into the temple, but into the Holy of Holies, the place that only like at a certain time of the year the high priest was allowed to go into. This place was revered to believe the very presence of God. And he brings in this statue of Zeus. So this guy is not trying to play it neutral, just sort of like kind of walking this line. He has crossed it, and he is making it known very clearly, if anyone runs up against me, I will destroy them. So he's desecrating the temple, pigs on the altar, Zeus in the Holy of Holies, no sacrifices. The scriptures are being burned. And not just to sensationalize this, but to tell you historically actually what happened, Josephus, who's a historian in that, around that time period, records this account. He basically said, if somebody would run up against him saying, hey, a new baby boy is born, and they're like, we're not going to listen to Antiochus IV, even though he thinks he's God manifest, we are going to follow our God. 
We're going to have our son circumcised. We're going to do all of those things that the people would do. If he found out about that, all right, he would not only have the mother killed, he would have the son killed, and he would have the dad crucified while having the son wrapped around his neck there on the cross. Like, that's how gruesome and horrific this man was. No reverence for God, nothing about the, the kingdom of God, just believes himself to, to be God manifest. Now, we hear that, right? And it's hard to wrap our minds around that. It's just, like, horrific. And if you're wondering why there's a festival of dedications, because, we'll talk about this in a moment, there was liberation, like this guy was deposed of. But I think we have to stop and ask ourselves a question because in this theme of renewal and of what Jesus is doing and about the temple in particular, it's helpful to know this isn't the first time that the temple's been desecrated. And so if you know the story of God's people, you know there's sin and rebellion and Babylonians come and they're carried off and the temple is destroyed. But it goes back even further than that. That the original temple of God is the Garden of Eden. Like, go read Genesis 1 and 2. That's the picture. And so even throughout the history of God's people, when they are told to make the tabernacle and you get all these very detailed instructions, it sort of helped recreate that place of Eden. It's the temple, and then ultimately the, the physical temple that was, that was built. But it's all about the presence of God. And what do we know from Genesis 1 and 2? Adam and Eve, perfect communion, not only with one another, but with the entire environment, with the animals that are there, and then this communion that they had with God, with God, this walking with God, being in relationship with God, walking with God, cool of the day, like this picture of intimacy and closeness and the ultimate renewal, like what our hearts are longing for, like that, that angst and that ache that we feel when sometimes there's just this frustration and we don't know will we ever find any sort of satisfaction. That is that place that Augustine spoke of, like our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. Like that's what's deep within all of us. We long for the presence of God. And the original desecration of the temple, the presence of God happened in Genesis 3. And so we hear a story of Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who's like, I'm God manifest. And it seems crazy and absurd, but it's also just Genesis 3 playing out. It's a serpent showing up and saying, the true God is holding out on you, and will you reach for the fruit and declare that you can be a God, and you can do you, and you can do what you want to do, and you can make it all about you, and that's what they do. Unless for a moment we think, well, I would have done differently there. What does your track record prove and my track record? We are reachers for the fruit. We keep doing that. And so on the one level, I can look at the horrificness of Antiochus IV Epiphanes and be like, how in the world could he think that he is God? Look at all his behavior, and it's atrocious. And yet, there's something in the human heart that we, maybe in less audacious ways, but in still ways that are an offense to a holy God, we reach for the fruit and we say, I want to do it. We may never utter the words that I'm God, but the disposition of our hearts is, I don't want anybody to get in my way. I want my will to be done. And the more we pursue that, the less renewal we'll find and the more devastation there actually will be. Now, the reason there's a celebration, just so you, you know, in case you're wondering, like, how did this all resolve? There's an incredible story, all right, of this 
this family, the Maccabee family, and there's this particular son named Judas Maccabeus who leads this particular revolt through all these guerrilla warfare tactics. It's fascinating. You can go read more about it, but he's actually able to deliver God's people and the temple's restored. And there are kind of three things, right? You could summarize his work, all right? Temple, light, and sacrifices. So he restores the temple. He restores it. He gets rid of Zeus, like takes him out of the Holy of Holies, makes sure that things are properly set up. But there's this, all that was meant to happen in the temple is beginning to be re- restored. There was also, as part of this for the Jewish people, the lighting of what's known as the menorah and the lights, the candles would, would be lit. And during the, this time, they want to relight those as quickly as they can, as the sign to be able to say, like, we're not under this rule and reign. We're restoring right worship. And legend has it that they only had enough oil for one particular night. And so as they're searching for more, they're actually able to see that the candle end up lasting for eight nights. And so this ties into the Hanukkah celebration, all of, all of that. And then you have sacrifices being restored. Now, at this point, those details, temple, light, sacrifices there should be some lights on the dashboard that are going off. Like, does this sound like anybody that we know? This is what this text is driving at. Who do we know? Who have we been studying that comes on the scene that says, I'm God manifest. In fact, I am the temple, and you destroy this temple. I'm going to raise it up again in three days. Who showed up on the scene and says, I'm the light of the world? And it's not just a miracle that the light would shine with very little oil for eight days. It's like, I'm the light that never goes out and illuminates everything. Who's the one that shows up and says, yeah, the sacrifices, we're doing away with that because there's the once and for all, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the good shepherd that would become the sacrifice. Jesus is very intentionally stepping in at this moment in the middle of this feast when these things would have been on the forefront of people's mind. Is there going to be renewal? Is there going to be this work of God? They're celebrating Judas Maccabeus and the temple, the restoration of the temple and the lights and the sacrifice. And it's in this place that Jesus says, God manifests, God has shown up, and there's this new and better story. That was amazing. Praise God for Judas Maccabeus, but there's something so much better. And yet, as I read the text a few moments ago, some believe, as we're told at the end in verse 40 to 42, but most are rejecting him. And so the question becomes, how do we respond to this? Because the response of the people, if we look back at the very beginning, it says the Jews, this is verse 24, the Jews surrounded him. They surround Jesus, and this is very aggressive language. Like this sort of language shows up in sort of the, the march around Jericho sort of uh, language that's being used here. Like this is not, oh, let's just gather around in a little circle. It'll be fun. We can all circle up together, right? This is not a huddle around Jesus. This is threatening. And what they begin to say to him can be understood a couple of different ways. The text I read says, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. It can also be translated as this, how long are you going to annoy us? That also can be a legitimate translation of this. You might also see a note in the scriptures there, another translation, how long are you taking away our life? They gather around Jesus the one who's been doing the miracles, the one who's been loving and caring for people, the least of these, he's teaching them. And the response of the people, how long are you going to annoy us? 
Like, when can you be done away with? How long are you going to take our life? It's Genesis 3 language over and over again. Not willing to submit to God and to all that he has given to us and celebrate that, but rather it's like, how long are you going to rob me of life? The one, Jesus, who had just said a couple months prior to this in the beginning part of John chapter 10, there's a thief that comes to steal and to kill and to destroy, speaking of the religious leaders, but I have come that you might have life and life abundantly. Jesus is not in the business of stealing life from you, but in giving life but they won't believe. There's this need for renewal. So what Jesus does here, look with me at verses 27 to 29. He begins to then paint this picture of here are people that have been renewed. Here's what it looks like. Here's this this kind of snapshot of renewal. This is what we're invited into. And so verse 27, Jesus says, my sheep, they hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of of the Father's hand. So in this, let's just look very quickly. I mean, there's just a few things here, just this sort of picture that's being painted of what it looks like to be a renewed people. What are we actually invited into? The people that are missing out don't have this. Jesus is like, you're you're not of my sheep. You are not following me. But those that are, and towards the end of this particular chapter, when it says some believed, this is the life they're invited into. And this is the life you and I are invited into. And so it tells us first, they listen to Jesus's voice. And we looked at this a lot last week, but there is a narrative. And it's a dominant narrative, again, that continues from Genesis 3 on, that's like, you need to carve out a name for yourself. You need to do what you want to do. You're not to come under the authority of God's word. Did God really say, let's question that, let's doubt that, let's just do what feels good to us or what is convenient. Jesus says, no, they listen to my voice. They are following me. And then it continues, and they're actually known by Jesus. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And the language here is highly relational. It is not simply that Jesus knows a lot of facts about you. Though that is true, all right? Like, he shows up, and you, know, you can't hide from him. You can't keep anything from him, all right? He literally knows everything. He knows the things you can't even give language to that's just in the deep parts of your heart. He knows it all. But it goes beyond that. Jesus is actually saying, hey, I know all of that, and I know all of your rebellion, and I know all of these facts about you, and I want you to know this. Like, I'm pursuing you. I know you. I'm in relationship with you, that he knows your name that he views you as his sons and and daughters if you've trusted in him. Like it's this highly, highly relational. And this is sort of emphasized with what it says at the end of verse 27. They hear my voice, they know, and they follow me. The calling of a disciple is to know the rabbi. It's to know the teacher. It's to know the Messiah and to actually follow him or another way to talk about it, say to walk with Jesus. They are walking with Jesus. Now to walk with somebody, right? Like I get that you can walk next to people that you're not in relationship with, like on a crowded street or whatnot. But if you just happen to be like walking in a relatively sparse area, all right, and if you're just kind of minding your own business and somebody kind of hustles up to like be right next to you and you don't know this person and they're just kind of walking in step with you, can we just be honest? 
That's weird, right? You're immediately like, I'm gonna get my phone out, 911 is on, like, I'm ready to go. Like, who is this person? Like, walking, following, it signifies, again, relationship. Are you being renewed by Jesus? Are you getting to know him as he gets to know you? I mean, it's this just picture of friendship that we're invited into. Like, you walk with your friends. You walk with those that you're in relationship with. And it's a group of people that are following Jesus wherever he goes. To help us think about this, let's talk about omelets for a moment, moment okay? Um, and so uh, I, I know this. Apparently, omelets are made with eggs, all right? So I'm, I'm great in the kitchen, but that's, that's about as much as I know. Now, um, this past week, I picked up a new book called Art and Faith. I've been reading through this by an artist named Makoto Fujimura, who's a Japanese-American artist. And one of the things that he talks about is he's trying to get us to understand that it's possible to have the recipe for something, to have the ingredients for something, and not actually produce in the end something that will be satisfying, something that's actually edible, something that would be worth even serving to, to other people. And so he tells the rather comical story of like, hey, there's a particular chef that he's been following, and apparently this person's well known for their ability to make amazing omelets, all right? And certainly more can go into an omelet than simply eggs, but you can also just make it with, with that. And he's like, he's like, so he speaks of like, hey, I got the computer out, I'm on YouTube, I'm following this guy, I'm get, I have got the right ingredients, I've got the recipe, but in the end, not actually being able to produce to the same level of the, the person that he's you know, seeking to follow here. That we can't equate simply knowledge of something or having the ingredients or having the recipe with actually living this out. So he says it this way. He says, but no matter how many times I watch the video or read the recipe, I find it difficult to make a simple omelet the way he does it so effortlessly. A recipe for an omelet is as simple as it can get. But information about how to make one does not readily translate into the actual making of the thing. In other words, there is a huge gap between the informational knowing and the actual knowing of making. The same can be applied to theology. There is a huge gap between knowing theological concepts or what Christians call the gospel and the actual practice of knowing. If we want renewal... The invitation is to follow Jesus, to experience the life he has offered to us, not to simply know the recipe and to do what the church sometimes is very gifted at doing. Let's argue about the ingredients and the recipe and the best way to do it and not actually have something like producing the fruit of the spirit at, at the end of the day, right? So we can get all caught up in that. And theology is not bad. It's not knocking that. But are we actually taking what we know, taking the good news of the gospel and saying, I, this is what I'm made for. This is where renewal is to be found. Am I gonna listen to the voice of Jesus and be actively engaged in following him? Because there's this work of renewal where you are invited not only to enjoy the presence of God, but to be an agent to bring the presence of God, to be about a work of renewal out in the community. That's where this thing is going. That's the story that is being told. It tells us as well, they are given life by Jesus. Verse 28, I give them eternal life. Not in conjunction with you, not because you contributed a little and he contributed a little. You and I are given life by Jesus. The only thing we contribute is our sin. Like, that's it. We're dead in our sins and our trespasses. Jesus gives life. Jesus gives us new hearts. Jesus does this work. They're given life by Jesus. And then it tells us this 
portrait of this picture of renewal, the people that embodied this, says they're secure in Jesus. There is such a deep trust in him that regardless of circumstances, you know that you are secure. And so he says they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. One of the things that strikes me about this text, and it happens in multiple places, but Jesus has this calmness about him. Jesus has this non-anxious presence. He knows there's an hour that's coming for him. But in this moment, even though the people are surrounding him, they're threatening him, they're functionally even mocking him, like how long are you going to annoy us? When are you going to stop like robbing us of life? They're confronting him. And even when they pick up stones to stone him, his response as he continues to engage, how is he actually able to have that? It's because there's this connection that he has with the Father. There's this identity that he has. He knows the Father has spoken over him. You are my beloved son, and in you I am well pleased. He's got nothing to prove. What if you and I could embody that, that we were so caught up in just the strength of God knowing that he has got us? It doesn't mean there's not gonna be hard circumstances, right? We've all brought things in here this morning. If we could sit down and just converse, there are a ton of difficult things going on. But do you know that you are secure, that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God? What would it look like to rest in that so deeply that even amidst pain and hardship, we showcase to a watching world a non-anxious presence because we are trusting not in ourselves and we're not trusting in the quality or the intensity of our faith. We're trusting in the object of our faith, which is Jesus. And Jesus has got you and me regardless of how we respond or what actually is going on. This is why Paul would write in the book of Romans, in chapter 8. Let me just read these words. And you think through what it is that's heavy on your heart. And you think through the difficulty and all of that. And let this one just wash over you. Like be this balm for, for your soul. I mean, this is meant to be an encouragement. To be reminded of the strength of our God. So Paul, knowing that there's difficult circumstances, knowing that all of creation he would speak of earlier is in this just groaning, right? Just like, ugh. Um, I, I, my wife has picked up on this. I will around the house sometimes. She's like, is everything okay? I just apparently make groaning noises at times. Just like, ugh, like something's wrong. There's not even any real words to it, right? It's just like something is off and we feel it. And Paul's saying everything, every person in all of creation is groaning. And yet, here's these words. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. So who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more, has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Like that's happening right now in real time. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? And then he just lists out these things. Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Like that's an intense list right there, right? Like if you're experiencing that, if people are coming against you and there's affliction and distress and you find like, man, there's not even enough food to eat, there's famine, oh, and there's nakedness. Like you're completely exposed. You feel completely vulnerable. 
Jesus steps into that space, and these words continue. Because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No. And all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's like Paul is just like, I'm just layering this, like one thing after another. I want you to know what Jesus spoke of in John chapter 10. He has got you. No circumstance, no person, no enemy of God can snatch you out of his hand. That at the end of the day, despite pain and all that, if you're in Christ, you are untouchable. Big picture, when you zoom way out, there is nothing that can happen to you that is going to alter your eternity, your eternal life, your enjoyment of the presence of God. And it's rooted in the union that Jesus has with the Father. If that's not true, if Jesus is just a good teacher, then we don't have any sort of security. But because there's this union, we actually do. This is why the theologian N.T. Wright would say it this way. Those who hear Jesus' voice and recognize it as the voice of their shepherd will be safe forever. He will look after them, and even death itself, the last great enemy, cannot ultimately harm them. The reason Jesus can be so confident of this is that the guarantee is his own unbreakable bond of love and union with the Father and the fact that the sheep he owns are the ones the Father has given him. Christian confidence about the future beyond death, in other words, is not a matter of wishful thinking, a vague general hope, or a temperamental inclination to assume things will turn out all right. It is built firmly on nothing less than the union of Jesus with the Father, one of the main themes of this whole gospel we're looking at. So Jesus says these words at the end of verse 30, as we get into these last few verses, I and the Father are one. This is the source of our renewal. The fact that this is true. So let's look at this last section in closing. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Now, what happens from here, admittedly, this can get a little bit confusing. So I, I mentioned this at the beginning of the sermon. They pick up stones to, to stone him. Jesus asks a very legitimate question like, uh, what have I done to like, deserve this? And they say, we aren't stoning you for good work, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. And so it's becoming clear what Jesus is claiming. He's not hiding from it. It should be abundantly clear right now, his identity. And then Jesus, he does something that can seem a bit odd at first glance. He says, verse 34, okay, if we're going to argue about me saying I'm God, he says, isn't it written in your law, I said you are God's. Now, this is a direct quote out of Psalm chapter 82. And if you were to go and read Psalm 82 in its entirety, one of the things you would find is that it is a reference to, and what Jesus makes reference to here, is the people of God being given the law of God. It's Mount Sinai, it's God's presence showing up and delivering the Ten Commandments, delivering the law to God's people. And from there, what actually was meant to happen is that the people were supposed to be given the law of God, all right? And then they were supposed to legitimately, like, to follow 
God. They were supposed to enjoy his presence. They were supposed to remember their liberation. They were supposed to remember all that God had done for them. And they were supposed to be a blessing to the whole world. Like, that's the big thing that's happening here. Not just you and I being protected from the fires of hell, as important as that is, but rather we are called to be agents of renewal. Like, God has something for you, and it's more than you simply escaping hell. Like, it's what are you and I actually getting to do to enjoy the presence of God, to be about that work? And Psalm 82 calls them out and says, you have failed miserably. You were given the law. And actually, that's what the law does is it shows us we can't do it. And what Jesus is doing is just there's this argument from the lesser to greater. He's like, hey, if you, imperfect people, were given the law and called to lean into your calling, and God can refer to you as lowercase g gods, meaning you're his representatives here. This is Genesis 1 and 2 stuff again. You're the Imago Dei. If he can refer to you as that, why is it so crazy to think that Jesus who's been sent, Jesus who's done all the miracles, Jesus who's doing everything that they're observing, why is it so crazy for him to say, I'm the son of God? And so that's the argument that he's building there when he says, isn't it written in your law? I said, you are God's. And he's telling them, if you were to read the whole context, because anytime a verse is referenced, you got to also see the surrounding context. He's saying, you actually haven't lived that out. Let's, you're, trying to make an, you're trying to argue with me here. What if you look for a moment at your need for renewal? What if you saw you were called to be agents of renewal? You were given the law so that you might showcase what it looks like to live under the rule and reign of God who has liberated you. But instead, you continue to reach for the fruit. You continue to fail miserably. The presence of God you have not been enjoying. And yes, Judas Maccabeus came back and you got this together. But guess what? There is something bigger that you need. And there's a clue in here, there's sort of this irony that's taking place when it tells us in verse 36, do you say you are blaspheming to the one the Father set apart and sent into the world? That there's this intentional language being used of set apart or consecrated. If we go back to how this began, there was the desecration of the temple. It was consecrated again and it was allowed to become like what it was intended to be. That's what's being celebrated. That's in this moment. Jesus is there, right? And he's talking about the fact that he is the one who's been set apart. He is the one who's been consecrated. And in all the things that this great hero of the Jewish faith was able to bring, it ultimately pales in comparison to what we really need. Because the people are still rejecting the true shepherd. To reject the shepherd is to reject the king. And it's to say, I want to be king. And Jesus is saying, you need a way for renewal to be back into what you were created to be. And so I made reference to this, but here's the, the text. And we looked at this weeks ago, but this is the one story. This all connects to be set apart and consecrated. It's God's way of communicating to us. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the place where God and humanity meet. And in John chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, it says, Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. The Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. Jesus, as the true temple, was torn down so that you and I could actually be brought back into the family of God, and that you and I could reclaim 
what our original purpose and identity was. We weren't meant to just sit back and twiddle our thumbs like God placed Adam and Eve in the garden and said, this is the presence of God. Enjoy this. Enjoy this temple and help expand it and take it further. And though they were not gods, they are made in the image of God and they were meant to showcase, here's what it looks like when you live under the glorious reign of our king and all the life that it brings. But there'd been rebellion, there's failure, not only for them, but for us. We keep reaching for the fruit. We keep, like an Antiochus Epiphany saying, like, no, I'm God manifest. I'm gonna do what I want to do. And Jesus has to step in and allow himself to be utterly wrecked, destroyed, nailed to a cross to bear our sin and shame, and then to take up his life three days later through resurrection and make us resurrection people. And it tells us at the end of this, we're almost through here, I love how it ends. In verses 40 to 42, Jesus moves out. He goes east of Jerusalem, which I believe is the area one should understand as, as where originally Eden was. He goes east of Eden so that eventually he's going to cross back over the, the Jordan and he's going to reclaim his people. He's going to do this work. And he goes out there, and it's away from all the religious leaders. It's away from all the power brokers. It's away from all the places of influence. He's not in Jerusalem anymore. He's out in the wilderness and there some people, says, believed. Not everyone. The religious leaders are lost. They're thinking they still know best. But there's a few that will submit to him and understand, oh, this is where life is to be found. And many there believed in him. So church, if that is you who've come to the end of yourself, realizing the story we've been living for, they're just small stories in comparison to what Christ offers us. And we think about this temple, we'll close with this. Yes, Jesus is the temple, but he's also building something here. And he's building us up into be this holy temple together. Like you may have thought this morning, like I'm just coming to church, but what you need to know is this, like you are part of a movement of God that is meant to showcase the rule and reign of King Jesus. Where everywhere you go, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, at your school, in your friendships, with your family, whatever is happening, you are meant to showcase, here's what it looks like to be one that is following Jesus, walking with Jesus, experiencing his grace when we mess up, Time and time again. And Paul writes to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2. He says this, So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. So there's this construction language. Jesus is the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into what? a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. A celebration, the consecration of the temple. Jesus steps in as that new temple, as that perfect temple, and Jesus now is building us up to be this living temple, to be the church that we've been called to be so that we might be used by God to bring about renewal, not in our strength, but through Christ. And so church, be encouraged in that. That is your calling. If you ever were wondering like, hey, what's my purpose in life? What should I do? Like, I don't know the particulars of what job you should do or who you should marry or what you should do. But I do know this, you're called as part of the living temple to showcase, here's what it looks like to live under the glad, with glad submission to our king. So let me pray for us as the worship team comes up. We're gonna participate 
in communion. So if you're a follower of Christ, we invite you to come forward and grab the elements, take them back to your seat, and we'll partake together after the song. If you're gathered with us at home, uh, you too can grab elements and get them together, and we'll partake together after the song. So let me pray for us. The worship team's going to come up. Let's sing and rejoice together. God, we thank you for the sending of your son, Jesus. You are that temple that was destroyed and built back up in three days. And thank you that we are part of this work of renewal. And so, God, we would pray for our church um, that you would use us. God, we think of even this upcoming week with things that will be happening with the Go Kids Bible Club, God, I think of just a very practical way there. How can we love and serve our community? God, would you bring about renewal? God, each person here will, will leave and will go back to their, the places you've appointed for them, their workplaces, their neighborhoods, their relationships. God, would you use each one of us as agents of renewal? That we would be so captivated by the renewing work of the gospel that we would want to see more and more people connected to that story. And so, God, I pray that you would do it for your glory and for our great joy. Thank you for the life that you give us. Thank you that we get to celebrate this meal together. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.